Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33 through verse 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. You see. As we've been going through our exposition of the book of Matthew, last week we took a look at what constituted the unpardonable sin which was applied directly there in the context to the Pharisees who had accused Jesus of casting out demons by the devil himself, accusing Jesus that he was filled by the devil. Now keep in mind that the Pharisees were already plotting to kill Jesus. And why were they plotting to kill Jesus? And what was his terrible crime? Worthy of death? He had the audacity to heal a man of a withered hand on the Sabbath. They had this distorted view of the Sabbath. Uh, uh, It was totally ritualistic. It was unbiblical in their understanding, totally void of mercy. And yet because Jesus would heal a man of this terrible affliction and free a man from the bondage of Satan, By casting out the demons, the Pharisees plotted to actually kill him. Now, Jesus had said that he was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the kingdom, if he was doing this, that the kingdom of God had already arrived. It wasn't something future, it was at hand. And the fact that he was casting out the demons, as he said, he bound the strong man. He was assaulting Satan's domain. And therefore, he says, when I bound, if you're going to uh, plunder a man's house, you've got to bind him, the strong man. And he says, I have bound him. The week before, we took a look at the binding of Satan. Jesus is bound him. Jesus is plundering his domain. His church is plundering his domain. His church is continually plundering the domain of Satan. Now, for the Pharisees, to see the great works of Jesus, to see all these miracles of Jesus which they saw, and then still accuse Jesus of being filled with the devil, it it vividly showed how they had darkened hearts, hearts of unbelief, hardened in their sin, that they would actually think that the devil would inhabit him, and that by that power he was doing all these marvelous things. The Pharisees would not believe in Jesus despite all that he did. No matter how good and no matter how merciful he was, it wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. They thought the opposite. They were a wicked brood indeed, a brood of vipers that Jesus would call them.
Well, Jesus is not through with Pharisees, even talking about how they were guilty of of uh, this un- blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin. He's not through with them because his whole illustration here, which is our message today, still has in mind the Pharisees. In verses 33 through 37, we see an illustration meant to show the utter wickedness of the Pharisees, that is, the nature of the sin, that they had darkened, unbelieving, rebellious hearts. The illustration of the tree with its fruit was designed specifically in that context to show how wicked this group was. While the illustration of the good and the bad tree was aimed at the Pharisees specifically here, there is a broad biblical principle nonetheless that we need to uh, understand and and we will uh, elaborate on more during the message. The point here is, good trees cannot produce bad fruit, and neither do bad trees produce good fruit. A sick tree produces sickly fruit. That's what Jesus says. And all that one has to do to, the, to know about the condition of the tree is to look at its fruit. Whether the tree is bad or good is determined by its fruit. Just look at the fruit. And you'll know the condition of the tree, whether it's healthy or sickly. Jesus relates this illustration for the purpose to demonstrate, and here's the main principle that we need to, to understand today, the relationship of a man's heart to his speech. That's the main point. A man's heart is the tree, and the fruit is his speech. And all one has to do is to listen to what a man speaks, and it will reveal his spiritual condition. That's what Jesus has said. Jesus, what did he call the Pharisees? A brood of vipers. There was nothing, anything good about them. Because their hearts were corrupt, filled with a deadly spiritual poison, and just like vipers that have deadly poison physically, these Pharisees were filled with this spiritual poison that all those who would seek to follow them or listen to them, they would be led down a terrible path. Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers who could not speak anything good. They were corrupt. Now remember, Jesus is not the only one that called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. If you remember when we went, uh, exposited Matthew 3, when John the Baptist was baptizing people, his baptism of repentance, Remember, the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees were coming to be baptized, and John says, oh, wait a minute. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. I mean, John was rough on the Pharisees. Now, John, unlike Jesus, who could not see the hearts of men, remember Jesus, 
knows the thoughts of them. How many times does it say Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said this about men? But their fruits were already being evidence. And that's why John says, I know all about you. And he says, you're a brood of vipers, and God is ready to take the axe and cut down the tree, meaning you. And he will deal with you. They really had no desire uh, to come to John. I mean, they were going to go through a ritual. But what was the purpose of John's baptism? You had to confess you were sinners, right? You had to acknowledge your need of a Savior. They had no need for that because they were self-righteous. And so we see, if one followed the example of the Pharisees, that said they would be spiritually destroyed. Now, of course, Jesus can never be wrong, being God in the flesh. And some might think that Jesus was exaggerating the corruption here of these religious leaders, but he wasn't exaggerating with reference to them. What kind of person, think about it, would get upset over someone being healed of these terrible afflictions? Why should people get upset when the blind are restored their sight? Why should they be upset when lame men from birth can start walking? Why should they get upset when a man's withered arm is restored? Or how horrifying to be filled with demons and have these demons cast out. These are magnificent, miraculous healings. Why would somebody be so upset that someone may be delivered from this? You would only be upset if you were corrupt in your heart. And that's where the Pharisees were. Hardened hearts just like Pharaoh in Egypt. You know, Pharaoh was so corrupt. Moses comes to him and says, let my people go. If you don't let them go, then there's going to be a plague sent upon you. And all the plagues that were being sent on Egypt after each plague, you going to let my people go? Okay, no. Here comes another plague. You going to let my people go? I guess not. Here comes another plague, another plague, and another plague. Decimating. Remember, all the plagues were attacking the gods of Egypt. So God was systematically demonstrating who was the true God. But Pharaoh would not relent. And here, just think about Pharaoh. He was watching his nation get utterly destroyed. And he still would not relent. That's how darkened his heart was. That's why the scripture says... God hardened his heart, meaning Pharaoh was hardening his heart, as Exodus 9 says. It was Pharaoh who was hardening his heart. God simply pulled away from Pharaoh and says, All right, you want to be wicked? I'm going to let you be as wicked. Because when God restrains his hand from people, then they, uh, their total depravity just goes ballistic, we may say. And that was the case with Pharaoh. And he watches his army get wiped out at the Red Sea, corrupt. Despite all that he saw, he would not relent. And then when he did, only when the firstborn uh, perished, then he had a second thought, and that's why he sent his army out after Israel, only to see it decimated. Well, the Pharisees were no different. No different. Despite what they saw, they were so corrupt 
They even wanted to kill the great miracle worker. That's how corrupt they were. They were filled with this horrible pride. They loved, what did Jesus say about them that we've already seen going through Matthew? He said, well, they're a self-righteous group. They love to be seen of men. They like to be seen on the street corners praying. They like to be seen giving alms. Uh, they like to wear long robes, Jesus says. They like uh, to be called rabbi, it says. And when uh, there are those who are sinners who have done wrong, they look, stand back aloof from them and say, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Self-righteous men. And so they, were, they could not experience mercy. They, they had no mercy. They showed no mercy. And no mercy would be shown to them. They were appalled to see Jesus dining with sinners. Remember? Matthew, the tax collector, <clears throat> who abused the public. The Lord saves him. He invites all of his friends over to his house for a big banquet in Jesus' benefit. And then Jesus comes and dines, eats and drinks with the sinners. And the Pharisees I can't believe what you're doing. And what does Jesus respond? He says, it's not the healthy that need, a, uh, <clears throat> that need a physician. It's the sick that need a physician. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I'm dining with them to reach them. You're not concerned about that. You could care less. All you can think about is, I don't want to be defiled by being in their presence. Because you have no concern for their spiritual state. That was the lot of the Pharisees. A man consumed with religious show will not humble himself and will condemn those who are not like him. And that was the lot of the Pharisees. Jesus said they were a brood of vipers because of their blasphemous words against the Holy Spirit. They blasphemed against the Holy Spirit when they said Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. They blasphemed the Spirit. In other words, they were dead trees who produced rotten fruit. And what was the rotten fruit? Their words. Their accusations against Jesus What's the bad fruit, the rotten fruit, that revealed their true state? All you have to do, Jesus says, look at, their, at the way they talk, how they talked about me. And you can understand there's nothing good about them. When they spoke, they gave away the condition of their hearts. Everything they did was corrupt. Why? Because their heart was corrupt. That's why. Good men speak good things. Evil men, Jesus says, speak evil things. And this is the biblical principle. This is the overriding principle that even goes beyond just Pharisees. Our speech gives away our spiritual condition. It always does. And we're going to say, even in the lives of the believers, though this was given in the context of the Pharisees, who were the reprobate of mankind, nonetheless, the general biblical principle is our speech gives away our heart's condition. So all you need to know about a person's 
spiritual maturity is just listen to the way they talk. They give it away all the time. We, we give away what's happening in our hearts all the time. Every day we give away something about ourselves, about what we talk about. Now let's make some very important observations before we go on. There are no good men apart from being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said here, says they uh, either make the tree good or the fruit good or make the tree bad or the fruit bad. Uh, <clears throat> the tree's known by its fruit. There are no good men apart from the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just, uh, let's turn over, just to remind ourselves of some biblical truth here. Turn over to Romans 3, look at verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All who turn aside together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. But wait a minute. All those, uh, those uh, Jewish people, those Hindus, those Muslims, uh, or the New Agers, they do good things. Now, come on. They do good things. Wait a minute. There are none who understands. There are none who do good. There are none who seek God. Well, I think they're, thinking, they're seeking God. They think they're seeking God, but they're not seeking the true God. Otherwise, they'd be believers in Jesus. And so we see here that uh, the Scripture says, None do good, period. The biblical doctrine of total depravity is seen in, in great clarity here. Unbelievers do not do any good thing from God's perspective because their tree at that point is dead. Remember, for any action to be good, there are three things that need to take place. Our Westminster Confession of Faith brings this out, in fact. For an action to be good, it needs to, there's three things. We, we talk about ethics, you talk about the goal of ethics, you talk about the standard, you're talking about the motive. So what does the goal have to be for that something to be good? The glory of God. Uh, what is the standard? According to the Word of God only. And what else? It has to be out of love for Jesus Christ. Now, if it doesn't correspond to any of those things, it's not a good deed. You know, I think people do good deeds. Well, no, that's not what Scripture says. Even in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, What if you were to sacrifice your life? For another person, is that not a good deed? Well, if it's not done for the glory of God, according to the Bible, out of love for Jesus, no, it isn't. That doesn't mean that the act itself is uh, horrific, but you can't call that a good act, because to be good has to be God glorifying out of love for Jesus, according to the Bible. Now, let's take a look at Ezekiel 36 for a moment. Turn to Ezekiel 36, look at verses 25 to 27. Then I will, now this is the promise in the Old Testament. This is one of the great promises in the Old Testament of the new covenant that would come, inaugurated in the new covenant. The promise of what God would one day do. He says, moreover, <clears throat> this I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. You know why the Pharisees could not speak anything good? It's because their heart had not been regenerated. It's because their heart was darkened. It was because they had a hardened heart. They had a heart of stone. God had not done this marvelous work in their hearts. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says. Consequently, everything they did was corrupt. Now, they were more corrupt than a lot of others in, in, in the nature of their offenses. They were blaspheming against the Spirit, accusing Jesus of the great merciful uh, miracle worker that he was of all sorts of terrible things. You know, a good Old Testament uh, example of what Jesus is speaking of here with reference to the Pharisees, turn over to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verses 6 through 8. Now, this is an Old Testament version of what Jesus is talking about of the, the uh, bad and good tree that he was just referring to. Isaiah 32, beginning of verse 6. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines towards wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. See, the heart is the treasury and a man's words are brought out of that treasury, whatever that treasury is, whether it's good or bad. The mouth will speak what's in the heart. You change the heart, you transform the heart, and everything will be different. Here's the reality. When men are converted to Christ... When they are delivered from the bondage of sin and to Satan, they cease to be sons of disobedience. They cease to be sons of disobedience. They talk differently. They do. Why do they talk differently? Because everything has changed. They have a new mindset. They have a new worldview. They've been delivered out of darkness. They're now in the domain of light. They see things differently. Therefore, they speak differently because their heart has been changed, transformed. That's why that, <clears throat> that great truth there mentioned in, in Romans chapter 12 likens <clears throat> that spiritual transformation to a metamorphosis. In fact, that's the Greek word there, metamorphi. That transformation, which is dramatic. You know, the one, the one passage the Lord used in my life when he brought me to himself many years ago out there in Utah, there's one verse the Lord drove home to me that I'll always remember. 
Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are new. I remember praying in my dorm room, Is that true, Lord? Is that, re- is that really true? If it is, I want that. I want that. And so what we see here, that men talk differently, they act differently because they have a new nature. They have have become new creatures. They have a rejuvenated heart. It's been changed. Remember what was the promise in in the New Covenant in Ezekiel? I will change your heart from stone to a heart of flesh. And what would that heart of flesh want to do? To follow the commandments of God. God forbid, you know, all those that talk about we live in an age of grace that's opposed to law. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says you've been born again of God. You're going to want a desire to follow the commandments of God. Romans 8 makes it very clear that, that those who are in Christ love the law of God. They want to please Him. Yeah, we know there's a struggle, but we want, as Paul says, in my mind, I I serve the law of God. I want to serve the law of God. I know there's a struggle going on, but I know where my heart is. Well, let's make some general applications of this. Uh, Even though we know that it's been uh, Jesus made these comments with reference to the Pharisees, what are some general applications Now, this may prove to be painful to us, but necessary. While the genuine believer has a transformed heart, we do know that there is still a sin principle in all of us. That's what Romans 7 says. There's still a sin principle within us. It is the sin nature that is at war with the new nature. This principle is still true. What's still true? Our speech reveals our heart. Now, with reference to a Christian, Christians reveal the level of their spiritual maturity by their speech. See, there's the difference. The corrupt Pharisees revealed that they had corrupt hearts, and then their speech revealed deadened hearts. The Christian, redeemed by Christ still reveals where they are spiritually by what they say. Turn with me to James chapter 3. And let's read verses 2 through 12. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a force to set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. 
for every species of beasts and birds of reptiles of creatures of the earth sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race but no one can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison with it we bless our Lord and our Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God from the same mouth both comes blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not to be this way does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. See the similarity there as James ends that section with our passage in Matthew 12. Our speech as Christians. Still reveals where we are spiritually. And the exhortation of Scripture is that it needs to come blessing, not cursing. We need to watch what we say. Let's, let's remind ourselves of some uh, great things that the Proverbs says in chapter 10. There's a multitude of things about the tongue in Proverbs 10. So turn with me to Proverbs 10 and look at, first of all, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Look at verse 13. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Look at verse 14. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Look at verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many. The fools die for lack of understanding. Then look at verse 31. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. In verse 32. The lips of the righteous... Bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverted. God's desire is for his people to be holy. The Bible says you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. I'm getting personal now because we need to know how we can become holy. And again, we give away our heart's condition... We give away, as a Christian, the level of our sanctification by what we talk about. What is the nature of our speech? So let's start with our homes. Let's start with children. Children, how do you talk to your parents? Uh, well, let me back up. That's before we get to parents. How do you talk to your brother and your sister? Are your words kind and forgiving? Or are they, are they designed to edify your brother and your sister? Or are you ugly to one another? And usually ugly by things that you say. In other words, do you murder your siblings with your harsh words? Because with our words... They are like a sharp sword, the scripture says. And so what are we doing with the reference to it? 
So children, how do you talk to your parents? Are you respectful? Do you argue with your parents? Do you yell at your parents? Do you blame them for certain things in your life while they're not going the way they ought to? See, your those use of the tongue reveals a heart problem. Your words reveal your heart. So, do you call yourself a Christian, young people? Then prove it by words of blessing from a fountain of life and not from a poison well. Prove it with the fruit of the mouth. Let's move on. Let's talk about spouse relationships. Wives, how do you talk to your husbands? Do you manifest what Peter says in 1 Peter 3? A quiet and gentle spirit? Or do you speak words of disrespect, condemning words, judgmental words, suspicious words, uh, not from a trusting heart? Wives, do you build up your husbands? Or are they words of a nagging wife, whereas Proverbs says it's better to be in the corner of a house than to have to endure those nagging words? Let's talk about husbands for a moment. Husbands, do you, how do you speak to your wives? Do you belittle your wife? Do you speak kind and tender words? Or do you speak words that tear down your wife? How do you treat your wife? Do you treat her with dignity as a co-heir of eternal life that Scripture says? Do you view her as uh, any less dignity than you? Yes, your wives are subordinates according to the scriptures. And yes, you are the head of the household in this position. But are you tyrannical? Do you not care at all how you treat her? How you talk to her? Do you frequently Break her down with harsh words, belittling words. Brethren, our words reveal our hearts. Our words reveal the spiritual maturity of our hearts. That's the overriding principle of what Jesus is talking about. Whether it applies to the Pharisees who were corrupt, or where it applies to the redeemed community and how we should treat one another and our neighbor. You probably heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can't hurt me. Well, I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Words are far more often more damaging. I'd rather be hit upside the head with a stick than for someone to say something unloving to me from someone close to me. I'd rather be hit in the head. Because after, hopefully after a day... That may go away, but those words can stay with you, and they may stay with you a lifetime. Words are powerful things. That's what James says. Words are powerful. They can light a force in a bad way. The Scripture says in Proverbs 16.24 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Well, that's what Proverbs 18.21 says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
Proverbs 16.24 says, Words can bring healing. So, what, what do we want to do with our words? Do we want to heal or not? Do we want to heal or are we going to use words that tear down, destroy? And with those words, we're always revealing something that's going on in our heart. Proverbs ten nineteen is so true, and it says, A wise man is a man of few words. And where there are many words, he goes on and says, Transgression is unavoidable. <laughs> How many times have we got ourselves into trouble by just continually talking? We said we should just have shut up a long time ago. The more we talk, you see, uh, we give away. Now, here's the thing. We reveal our heart's condition. So I've got to ask us all this sobering question. Do you really have a deep desire to please the Lord Jesus? How, how committed are you to wanting to please Jesus? If you're that committed to please Jesus, which you ought to be, then watch, what you, watch how you talk. Watch what you say with your words, because we are either going to vindicate ourselves with the words, or we are going to condemn ourselves in some respect with our words. After all, what did Jesus say? And turn back to our, Matthew, our passage in Matthew 12, look at verses 36 and 37. What did Jesus say? And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. Now these are sobering words and they're very serious words. Every careless word, Jesus says, will be brought up on judgment day. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is, we will either give evidence on Judgment Day of a lively faith that trusted only in Jesus Christ, or we will give evidence against us that we were mere professors, that we were hypocrites and not genuine believers. That's what's going to happen. Now, let me make this very clear. On the final day of judgment, we will be justified or condemned, as Jesus said, verse 37. Genuine Christians cannot lose their salvation. Genuine Christians are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And genuine Christians are not trusting in their own works of righteousness in any shape or form. We are justified by Christ's imputed righteousness, credited to us, given to us, when by faith, which is only an instrument, mind you, that's what faith is, an instrument by which we grab hold of Jesus. There's nothing in that faith that's uh, obedient in the sense to the law of God. No, it's a faith, just like what Jesus said, or what was that Jesus said that when he, when he was 
going to be lifted up and that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. He appeals to that story, remember, in, in Numbers where the children of Israel were uh, bitten by the poisonous snakes and they were perishing. And they were begging Moses to do something and Moses interceded. He says, well, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole. Tell the people, look to the pole, look to the pole, and if you look, if you just look, you'll be healed. Now, wait a minute, it can't be that easy. No, just look and be healed. We always try to complicate things. No, faith is an instrument by which you grab hold of Jesus. The righteousness is not in us. The righteousness is in Jesus. So, when we put our faith in Jesus, our faith... Lays hold of Christ and his righteousness. But we do know in the scriptures there are hypocrites. Jesus said there were hypocrites. Deceived people. We've already looked at Matthew 7 and exposited Matthew 7, where he said, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Saving faith does reveal itself. In good works out of gratitude to Jesus. Our good works as Christians is the fruit. It's the fruit that proves that the tree is healthy. That there is real faith there in Jesus. It doesn't mean we're justified in in the sense that it's the basis. No, it's the fruit. It's the proof of the pudding. That's what Jesus has been saying all along. The good tree produces good fruit. Where there is saving faith, it will show itself. That's why Jesus said, I mean, why James said there in in James chapter 2, if you see someone in need and you do nothing to help them, where's your faith? It's useless. If you've got faith, you've got a heart of compassion. You're merciful. You want to help. Pharisees didn't want to help, did they? They didn't want to help. Why didn't they want to help? Because they had a darkened heart. There was no saving faith there. You see, we demonstrate that we are genuine Christians by our speech. Yes, by our speech. We give away our heart. And how we talk is a big, a big deal. It shows the world the state of our heart. So I'll leave you with this admonition. Does your, state, your, does your daily speech before others demonstrate that you are a true believer or is it demonstrating that you're just a hypocrite? A religious hypocrite. Because Jesus says, on the day of judgment, All those words will be brought up. And it will show where you really were. Remember, when we get to Matthew 25, it's going to be the righteous who will say something. He says he'll separate the sheep from the goat and the sheep. They're not going to realize all the things that they did in the name of Jesus. They forgot about it. But they will be justified because they revealed by all their... Uh, eating of the poor, giving uh, men who are thirsty water, visiting the people in prison, all these good deeds reveal that they really did know Jesus.
And then the, the ghosts will say, no, wait a minute, we never saw you naked or sick, Jesus. What are you talking about? He says, when you didn't do anything to these, you revealed your heart's condition. And now I'm going to send you where you belong because you never really cared. Yeah, you may have been religious. You may have professed my name, but you didn't really know me. I didn't know you. You see, we give away our heart conditioned by our words. I hope we never think quite the same about this after this message. And that we watch our words and what we say to one another. It's that important. Let us pray.